Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. For 35 plus years, Peter Glick has been one of the nation's most interesting scientists thinking about the water systems feeding the modern world. He's done it from right here in the Bay Area, largely through the nonprofit he founded, the Pacific Institute. He's won a bunch of big awards, including the MacArthur, and he's got a new book out, The Three Ages of Water, which is like the summation of his life's work examining, improving, and criticizing the ways that we tap into the Earth's hydrological cycle and extract H2O for human use. We'll get him to give us a masterclass in where we are right now in the slow water crisis that could determine a big chunk of our state's future. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. At a United Nations water conference in March, amid increasing global water conflicts and the climate crisis, the U.N. Secretary General sounded an urgent alarm. All of humanity's hopes for the future depend in some way on charting a new course to sustainably manage and conserve water. But what would a new course look like? Water expert Peter Glick seeks to answer that question in his new book, The Three Ages of Water, drawing on the lessons of our deep human entanglement with water from prehistoric, even pre-human times, through the dam and aqueduct age and to our present moment, where we're choosing some kind of future, whether we like it or not. Glick joins us this morning to talk about his book and his vision for a more holistic way of thinking about our water systems. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Peter. Oh, I'm delighted to be here, Alexis. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so great to talk with you again. Um, As uh, I mentioned, you split the book into three ages of water. Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through just those ages and why you chose to structure the book like that? Sure. So uh, I think of the first age of water as really prehistory, the period of time... uh, in the book, from the creation of the universe up through, I would say, a couple of thousand years ago, really when uh, the earth got its water, mm-hmm. when uh, humanity evolved as a function of the climate conditions and the water conditions that that early Homo sapiens experienced through the first empires uh, that really tried to learn how to manage and manipulate water. That's the first age. Mm-hmm. The second age I think of as our age, really sort of the the period of time when science and technology and engineering and culture and art 
figured out what water was. We, you know, we learned what water really was, what the molecules of oxygen and hydrogen were. Mm-hmm. We started to build the engineering and, and uh, uh, technical infrastructure to help us get the water we want and to use the water that we use today. And the second age really is also the crisis, the unintended consequences of that manipulation of the hydrologic cycle. And uh, I think of the third age as what's coming, the future that could be a dismal, you know, a dismal apocalyptic future that, of course, we we hear about all the time. Or, as I prefer to think, a much more positive, sustainable future. Those are the three pieces of my, of the puzzle. You know, it's interesting. If we if we start with that first age, is the primary point that you want to make with that prehistory that humanity's relationship with water is like just so deep. It's like one of the deepest things that exist in, in human culture. Well, that's that's exactly right. I mean, really, I had a tremendous amount of fun writing this book because I, I learned a lot. And one of the things that I learned was the incredible importance that water and climate played literally in the evolution of Homo sapiens, that mm-hmm. You know, after the dinosaurs went extinct and mammals survived, and then over the literally millions of years of evolution, water played an incredibly important role in uh, the survival and the thriving of Homo sapiens, that, that it was our ability to manipulate the hydrologic cycle and to survive extreme events uh, that permitted Homo sapiens to become the dominant species on the planet. And water was also important in our outmigration from Africa and the way Homo sapiens left our home in Africa and moved to to first the Levant and, and then Europe and then across Asia and then across the land bridge to North and South America. Uh, water played a role in all of those events. I mean, how was water a driving force in those migrations? Well, so uh, it turns out this is, of course, what, what we understand today. This is a constantly changing science as we learn more about our ancient past. Uh, but it turns out that we believe that Homo sapiens were flexible enough to take advantage of both wet and dry periods as the climate naturally changed on the planet, uh, to take advantage of uh the green areas that opened up in northern Africa when the climate got wetter there, and to use those avenues to migrate uh, out of Africa to the rest of the world, where other species of early hominins, the Homo erectus and Neanderthals and some of the early species that didn't really survive, uh, weren't as flexible and weren't as capable of mm. managing the water, the, the conditions that water, water provided. Mm. You know, it's also really struck by your descriptions of kind of the sheer number of flood myths that exist in the tiny scraps we have left over from ancient societies and civilizations. As we're kind of moving from this prehistoric water stage into, you know, these early human civilizations, what has archaeology taught us about that kind of transition period where we're able to start manipulating water, not just sort of taking advantage of it? This was really fun, too, to learn about. Of course, almost all of us, when we grow up, we, we learn the story of Noah and the flood that, that God sent to punish mankind. Uh, but it turns out that, that the, the Noah story is not the earliest flood story, that there are flood narratives that go back 2,000 years before Noah that from ancient Sumeria that really tell the same story and that I think actually Noah, the story of Noah is based on, uh, where floods 
are sent by wrathful gods to punish humanity for some transgressions. Uh, and it turns out that it's entirely possible that these early flood myths are based on actual floods that occurred mm. in ancient Mesopotamia, in the Tigris and the Euphrates river basins, and then were handed down orally and then in written, uh, in written stories to later generations. Uh, and I think those stories, they, they say a couple of things. They, they first tell us that we really, in the early days, wanted to understand the role that water played. And we wanted to understand how we could manage these extreme events uh, and prevent them from being devastating, something, frankly, we're, <laughs> we're still thinking about today. Right. You know, and it's interesting because that those flood events, in addition to, you know, the desire to for more dependable agriculture, really drive the beginnings of this second age where humans begin to really take control or at least control pieces of this hydrologic cycle. And I want you to lay out a little bit of, you know, because we've been living in that world for, for quite some time, what are the benefits of doing that? Like, it's easy to see some of the downsides now in, you know, depleted rivers or, or pollution. Mm -hmm. But what, are, what were some of the upsides? Like, why did people really start to engage in this kind of engineering? So I really think at the end of the what I think of as the first stage of water, when empires, populations had grown, we invented agriculture, uh, we started to build the very first dams, the very first aqueducts. There's archaeological evidence from thousands of years ago of early dams and early aqueducts, uh, early irrigation systems. The first water war occurred at the end of the first stage of, of water, the first laws and institutions. What they really reflect was the growing population on the planet and the growing need to manage the water systems for our benefit. Uh, we were starting to outgrow the ability of just rainfall to provide enough food for us. We had to really think about smart irrigation systems. Uh, we had to build dams that were big enough and strong enough to withhold uh, water in the winter so we could use it in the dry periods and to, and to, and to prevent floods. And that needed engineering, and it needed science, and it needed the advances of the Second Age. Uh, and as I said earlier, the, I think the Second Age really is our age, and it's brought enormous benefits to us. You know, as, as you asked, uh, it's helped the population of the planet grow to 8 billion. It's helped us feed mostly most of the population. In the Second Age of Water, we learned... You know, in the first age, we suffered water-related diseases, but in the second age, we learned the source of water-related diseases, and we started to cure them. And we learned how to clean up contaminated water to provide what today is the safe water that comes out of our taps. So there are enormous benefits that have accrued to us from the advances of the science and technology and the institutions that we've developed in the second age. You know, I wanted to dwell on the waterborne disease part of your book, in part because I I think in our times, they've mostly been a thing of the past. But you detail the way that, you know, time and time again, cholera, for example, would sweep through different parts of the world and kill so, so many people. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because, you know, we, we think about uh, pandemics in terms of, say, like the, uh, the plague. Mm -hmm. But how about, how about something like cholera? Yeah, it turns out that there, there are a tremendous number of diseases associated that we call water-related diseases associated with 
clean with the failure to provide access to safe, clean water and sanitation associated with the human wastes that we dispose of in our water systems, cholera, dysentery, typhoid, there are a whole series of them. Waves of cholera have swept over the planet. We're in the seventh pandemic now of cholera. And part of the second age of water was understanding the sources of these water-related diseases, where they came from, how to cure them. Uh, and we've made tremendous advances. We, we know how to cure water-related diseases. The fact that we have failed completely to cure them worldwide is one of the, the, the failures of the second age of water. But the, the, one of the great stories in the book is the story of John Snow in England in the 1850s, when he really discovered that cholera was a water-related disease. It, some people thought it was airborne. Some people thought it was passed from human to human. Uh, and he proved that it was water-related. And that set the groundwork for the cures, the the strategies for both cleaning up water and eliminating water-related diseases. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I take from that story both like the optimism of science, but also the difficulty of implementation, right? Because it takes decades actually to get many, uh, even once we knew what to do, to actually do it. And particularly against, you know, the the difficulties of those particular times. Well, yeah, that's right. You know, even today, when there's a failure of a water system or there's a war and an outbreak and a water system is destroyed, we see resurgences of cholera. Cholera hasn't disappeared. Typhoid hasn't disappeared. Malaria hasn't disappeared yet. Mm -hmm. So, again, we, we do know how to cure these, but we have failed worldwide to do so. Yeah. We're talking about the history and future of water with Peter Glick, co-founder of the Pacific Institute and author of the new book, The Three Ages of Water. We'd love to hear from you. What questions do you have about the global history of water and the crisis that we all kind of know is here and increasing in severity? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-733. 6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. It's good to be back with you all after my vacation last week. We'll be back with more right after this break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the history and future of water with Peter Glick, co-founder of the Pacific Institute, author of the new book, 
The Three Ages of Water, among many other books that Peter's written about water over the years. Uh, we're going to get to some of your calls and questions about uh, the water crisis, both like in the West as well as globally. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. And we're KQED Forum on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I do want to talk about the utopian scenario that you paint in your book for water future. Intentionally utopian, I would say. But first, I do want to ask you about the kind of socio-political mechanisms that are going to get us there. We know that the way water is allocated across the country and the world varies a lot. But just thinking about California, the biggest questions really seem to be about the legal system that underpins who gets to control water, what we call, quote-unquote, water rights. So here's the question. Can we create this better world that we're going to talk about without sort of fundamental reform to our legal and economic frameworks? Or do we need to do that first before we can get to those other places? <laughs> okay, so you're not going to ask me an easy question. No, no. we got to do, do one hard one at the top of the B. That's how it works. Yeah, so... Um I do think fundamental ref- – again, it depends partly on where, where we're talking about and what problems we're talking about. You know, as I said, we the second age of water brought us enormous benefits, but also all sorts of unintended consequences on our ecosystems, on human populations, on conflict. And I do believe that the solutions to those problems exist. Uh, but in some places, they're going to require technical fixes. In some places, they're going to require economic changes. And in some places, they're going to require fundamental shifts in our institutions and our laws and our system of water management. And in California, for example, um, I really don't believe we can solve ultimately all of our water problems here purely with technology and purely with economics. I think it's going to require some changes in the way our institutions are structured, the way our water rights are structured, the way our legal system deals with water. And those are difficult changes, but I think they're both necessary. And I am an optimist. I think in the long run, they're possible. When we talk about changing the water rights system, let's go like one one level deeper on that. Like mm-hmm. we're we're talking about California. We're talking about you've got you know irrigation districts in different parts of the Central Valley that say I get a certain amount of water per you know per year. Uh, I can pump this much. I can do this much. How does that actually get changed? Like what would actually be the mechanism to start to loosen the grip of some of those agricultural interests, and which is what I assume you think needs to happen, um, and begin to do something different? Well, first of all, um, let me make the observation that I think if we were designing the system today, we wouldn't design it the way it's been designed. We would design something different. Uh, when water rights were given out, first of all, they, they were taken from the Native American communities that were here. No water was allocated to the environment. The environment wasn't considered a party to this. And so the water rights that were given out were given out to mostly white users and mostly agricultural users who placed a legal claim on water based on the institutions that we put in place 100 and 150 years ago. Um, Today, we're already starting to think about restoring water for natural ecosystems. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're already starting to talk about providing water to those communities, farm worker communities, Native American communities in the Central Valley that have been deprived of water for for this entire time. Um, It's going to require 
Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure the the best path, honestly, to accomplish this, but it's going to require legal challenges. It's going to require voluntary agreements on the part of some water rights users. You know, we already know that we gave out more water rights than there ever will be water. So there are plenty of water rights holders who never get water anyway. When it was like, yeah, I think I heard you say one time it's like five times the water rights or the, the yeah. amount of water that actually exists. Yeah. So the State Water Resources Control Board is, in theory, the organization statewide that manages water rights allocations and enforcement. Um, they've started to rethink about rethink how to do that. But the difficult decisions about about that reallocation still have to be made. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Um, let's bring in a caller who has a, a question about a topic I'm, I'm curious about as well. Kevin in San Jose, welcome. Yeah, hi. Uh, good morning. morning. The recent Supreme Court decision uh, on the Colorado River, uh, that kind of speaks to what you're talking about. Maybe, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Is it a mm-hmm. tangential decision? Do you see the Supreme Court decision denying the Indian nation their claim uh, to be progress or a setback. And furthermore, second question, misinformation is rife in this uh, mm-hmm. social uh, economic uh, world we live. Uh, I don't see much help in there. Do you see a way to get past people using water politically? Hmm. Hey, Kevin, thanks for that. Let me just for uh, for listeners, uh, quick update. There was a 5-4 Supreme Court uh, decision ruled against Navajo the Navajo Nation, pretty, you know, they were, the Navajo Nation was trying to get the U.S. government to hold to this 1868 peace treaty. The justices ruled essentially that the Navajo Nation was asking that the government take, quote unquote, affirmative steps to provide them water and said they weren't going to do it. How do you, how do you read the, the case, Peter? Well, so I, there have actually been two Supreme Court decisions in the last month that have been, in my opinion, steps backwards in protecting our water and moving to a more positive third age of water. Uh, you know, the the travesty in the Southwest has been, I mean, for for 200 years has been our treatment of Native Americans and their water rights. Uh, slowly, some of the tribes have been regaining water rights. Uh, the Navajo Nation in particular, though, has not been successful and is a community that has not had access to safe water and sanitation the way most of us have. Uh, and I think the Supreme Court decision was a step backward. I think it's unjustified. Um, and I would like to think that sometime in the future it will be reversed. But it, it, I would say it was a step backward. Mm. And, you know, are there cases, uh, are there areas of this kind of water management, water rights, where you feel like we're taking steps forward as well? Like, is it because I my my read has been that we have a lot of prospective solutions, but on the water right side of things, it doesn't seem like we're making a ton of progress. Well, in the West, on the water rights side of things, we're, we're not making a ton of progress. But I, I think that's inevitable. Again, I think, I think we will. Uh, there have been some efforts to apply economic models and markets to water instead of the simply first-in-time, first-in-right allocation system that we put in place. Um, a lot of those things are going to uh, end up going to court. The agreement on the Colorado to cut back water use because there's we're overdrawing water from the Colorado is ultimately going to impact water rights, too. And it's going to depend on how the different states allocate those things. The, the states are all a little different in, in how they do things. California is different than Arizona. Mm-hmm. It's different than Colorado. Colorado is, I would say, made a little more progress on the water rights reform front. Um, and California is a little behind the curve. 
So let's talk a little bit about this third age of water, this perspective good scenario. Like we're able to solve some of these political challenges. We put in place the right uh, kind of solutions. What's that world actually look like? Paint that picture for us. So I do believe that there's a positive future coming. Honestly, I'm, I'm an optimist. Um, I'm fully aware that there's going to be a lot of pain between now and then, and the challenge is figuring out how to get from here to there. Uh, but I, I think there's I think it's inevitable that we're going to move to a more sustainable management of our water system, that we're going to use water more efficiently, that we're going to restore ecosystems, uh, that we're going to grow more food with less water, uh, that we're, we're going to meet basic human needs for water and sanitation for everyone on the planet. And not in my lifetime, but inevitably. And I, I'm positive about this because I see all around us success stories where these things are already happening piece by piece. Uh, and the, the challenge is going to be scaling those things up and implementing them everywhere and reforming the old institutions and the old, overcoming the old barriers. But I do see all around us the signs that we're moving in the right direction. You've called this a soft path for water. I mean, the the reference there, I believe, is you know to Amory Lovins and alternative energy scenarios uh, of the 1970s, first proposed back then. Um, how do you see the deployment of these soft path water systems as different from the deployment of renewable energy systems? Yeah, so that's right. Amory coined coined the term soft path for energy many many years ago in the in the late 1970s, and I've written about a soft path for water uh, in the same context. That is. Uh, we th- we have to think about different forms of water supply. We can't just keep taking more water out of overtapped rivers and overtapped aquifers, overtapped systems. But there are new sources of water that that we can tap instead: recycled water, reclaimed water, desalinated water. Uh, we have to think about the way we use water. So a soft path for water means we have to be much more efficient with the water we're already taking out of the system grow more food with less water, wash our clothes, dishes, flush our toilets, take showers with more efficient technology, make our semiconductors with less water. And we're doing that as well. The soft path also says we have to restore natural ecosystems. Uh, We can no longer simply assume or ignore that there won't be any consequences from taking water out of the environment. And and, uh, think about ecosystems as a key part of this. And finally, the soft path says we need new kinds of institutions. The institutions that we put in place 100 years ago to manage our water aren't suited for the 21st century. And we need to think differently about our institutions. And all of the pieces of this together are what I call the soft path for water. Just one more point about that. It doesn't mean that we're still not going to need, in some places, hard infrastructure we're still going to need dams and water treatment systems in places where we don't have them and distribution systems. Uh, so those systems are just going to have to be built and managed differently than we managed them over the last century. Let's, uh, let's bring in an actual uh, concrete example of, of where there might be one of these trade-offs. Drew in Berkeley, welcome. Hey, Drew, can you hear me? Whoops. I can't. I'm sorry. I can't hear you. Uh, oh well, we'll we'll come back to you, Drew. We'll come back to you. Don't worry about it. Um, 
I'll I'll ask a, a slightly different question. You know, as as mm-hmm. part of this, you know, Amory Levin's vision for soft path for you know for energy, a lot of it had to do with kind of decentralization versus centralization. And mm-hmm. if you look at our water systems. Um, a lot of them are pretty centralized at this point. You know, we have big dams, we have these big distribution systems. Do you imagine that that our water future will be more decentralized or no? Yes and no. Uh, I think we will still, in many places, continue to rely on centralized infrastructure. Uh, but I do believe we will see more decentralized systems. And we already have a mix. You know, uh, we think about big cities and they have big centralized systems, but a, a tremendous number of Americans get their water from very decentralized rural systems, their own wells sometimes. Um, we're beginning to think about decentralized wastewater collection, treatment, and reuse. Mm-hmm. So instead of building huge pipelines to collect wastewater and sending them to a centralized plant where we treat the water to a pretty high standard and then typically throw it away, we're starting to talk about decentralized rural systems where we collect wastewater rurally, uh, treat it locally, and reuse it. San Francisco is now starting to have decentralized wastewater treatment in some of the big skyscrapers we have here uh, where we collect uh, black water and gray water. That's different qualities of wastewater. And we treat it and we reuse it on site for flushing toilets or watering landscapes or or other kinds of uses. Uh, we will absolutely see a, a new mix of these centralized and decentralized systems. Yeah. You know, um, when we are looking at the, I guess I want to call them almost like philosophical underpinnings of this new system, I mean, one area where you place a decent amount of faith, I think, is in this new ecological economics, right? This Mm -hmm. ability to work with our existing kind of price system, but making sure that we now price more things like ecosystem services or things like that. Do you think that's the right sort of... um, tool, the right set of ideas that we need to get to the third age, or is it just kind of part of this evolution? It's part of it. It's one of the tools that we need. You know, water is one of these stories where there is no silver bullet. You know, I give a lot of talks about water, and people say, often one of the first questions I get is, well, what about desalination? Won't that, can't we just desalinate the seawater and that'll solve all of our problems? And desalination is a tool. Uh, it, It has economic challenges, it has environmental challenges, and it's a piece of the puzzle. And economics in general is a a piece of the puzzle. It's an important one, in part because the traditional economic approaches that we've used for everything have have ignored the environment. We, We gave no value to ecosystems in the 20th century when we built most of our water systems, and we're now suffering the consequences for that. But the new field, relatively new field, decades old now, but of ecological economics says there's an enormous economic value to a healthy environment. And thinking about what that value is and how to how to understand that value, but also how to apply that value in our economic system now is a challenge. But we're starting to do that. Yeah. We're starting to take down damaging, uneconomic, unsafe uh, dams around the world and restore rivers. Uh, we're starting to understand that there's a value to healthy fisheries and healthy flyways in the Pacific Flyway. And so we're starting to think about how farmers can both continue to grow food but also provide ecosystem services. Uh, and that's, I think, going to accelerate. And that's a, I think that's great news. Yeah. Let's go to uh, Drew in Berkeley. Welcome, Drew. Hi. Uh, thank you very much for this wonderful conversation. Um, I'd like to ask the speaker... 
about Hetch Hetchy. There's a plan to uh, um, drain the reservoir and perhaps create a new system for delivering the water to San Francisco, and I'd be interested to know mm-hmm. how um, our speaker might feel about that. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, so that's a, that's a great example. Um, Hetch Hetchy, of course, was built uh, 100 years ago. Uh, over the serious opposition of John Muir, of course, and, and environmentalists. And it's critically important for, for San Francisco's water supply. It provides some energy for San Francisco. But there's been a conversation in recent years about the possibility of uh, taking down Hetch Hetchy Dam, decommissioning it, and restoring what was an un- apparently an unbelievably magnificent valley in Yosemite National Park. Um, it's a good example of the conversations that we're having about can we change the system that we depend on now in a way for everybody's benefit? Can we provide the energy and water that San Francisco needs and restore the ecosystem that we destroyed when we provided 100 years ago for those needs? My, my opinion about this <laughs> is that I think that ultimately, not right away, but, but, but in the long run, we will decommission Hetch Hetchy once we have figured out how to provide reliable water supply for the city of San Francisco, how to make up the not huge amount, but but not tiny amount of energy that Hetch, Hetch Hetchy provides. And there are discussions underway about how to do that. Uh, we're doing that elsewhere. We're taking down now four big dams on the Klamath in Northern California. Um, I don't think Hetch Hetchy is going to come down anytime soon, but I do believe in the long run we will figure out that the value of restoring Hetch Hetchy uh, is higher than the cost of figuring out other ways to provide its benefits to San Francisco. Yeah. We're talking about the history and future of water with Peter Glick, co-founder of the Pacific Institute, author of the new book, The Three Ages of Water. We're going to get to more of your comments. People have a bunch of different questions about the flood and how water originally arrived on Earth. Uh, We also have a a few comments about the importance of um, agricultural interests in California's water system. So we're going to get to some of those. We'd love to hear uh, from you. What questions do you have about water here in California and how it relates to global water system? Give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. If you can't get through on the phones, you can always try the email at forum at kqed.org or Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more with Peter Glick. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the history and future of water with Peter Glick, co-founder of the Pacific Institute here in the Bay Area and author of the new book, The Three Ages of Water. So we have, uh, let's go straight to this agricultural question. Eric writes in to say, my impression is that agricultural interests in California have far too much power. They get away with sucking up the aquifer to the point where we have to rebuild roads and bridges in the Central Valley as the land sinks. They pay far too little for water so we can export almonds to China. Our politicians are owned by big agriculture, or at least that's how it seems to me. How's it seem to you, Peter Glick? (laughs) Um, Well, let me start by saying uh, California is a wonderful place to grow food. The Central Valley soils are fantastic. Uh, The climate is great. Uh, we have a lot of water sometimes, uh, and the agricultural sector provides a lot of food for California and for the United States and for the rest of the world. The challenge is how can we continue to have a healthy agricultural uh, economy that continues to grow food while using less water, while is more protective of the environment? Uh, and that's a political challenge in part. It's an economic challenge, but without a doubt, uh, politics is a really uh, it's an important barrier to a lot of the reforms that I think we'll need to produce a healthy agricultural economy that looks a little different than today's. Mm. You know, Anna writes in, just sticking with this topic, I'd like for your guests to speak to the importance of not depleting aquifers. I live in coastal California where food production and persistent drought means that we get saltwater intrusion into our aquifers. Mm-hmm. But no one's talking about the ramifications of the depletion of our aquifers in real terms. It's kind of a key key challenge of the second age of water, right? Absolutely. So the second age of water, in the second age of water, we, we had the green revolution uh, when we hugely learned how to grow more food for a very rapidly expanding global population. And I argue that the green revolution was as much a revolution of irrigation technology and application, especially in India, Pakistan, and the United States, uh, as, as anything else. Uh, one of the consequences of that irrigation revolution was a growing dependence on groundwater. It turns out now probably 30% of the world's food production comes from groundwater aquifers that uh, that, uh, are overdrafted. And when you overdraft a groundwater aquifer, the levels drop. It becomes more expensive to pump. This is a problem in the Central Valley of California, a terrible problem. Mm -hmm. It's a problem in the Ogallala Aquifer under the Great Plains in the U.S. Northern China, India, Pakistan are all suffering overdraft of groundwater. And we absolutely have to get that under control because it's unsustainable. It, you just can't keep doing that. It's You're drawing down a stock. It's not a renewable resource mm-hmm. when you pump it out faster than nature recharges it. And so unless we get our groundwater problem under control, we're going to have serious agricultural and food problems in the coming years. And right now, already, before we've gotten to those, right, we have farm worker towns that are essentially pumping up nothing um, because a larger agricultural interest next door can just 
dig a deeper well. Yeah. So one of the consequences in California of overdrafting groundwater, especially the, some of the wealthier agribusinesses that can drill very deep groundwater wells, is they've sucked up so much groundwater that the groundwater levels have dropped below the level of the pumps of some small communities that have shallow wells, individual homes, small communities, farm worker communities especially. Uh, during the droughts that we've experienced over the last decade, there have been a lot of stories about these communities suffering the loss of their water supply, and that's still a serious problem. We have to get overdraft of groundwater under control. We have to start recharging those aquifers, and we have to ensure that all of the populations in California that don't have access to safe water today uh, are provided with that. It's a, it's a scandal, not just in, in California, but worldwide, that we have not provided safe water and sanitation to everyone on the planet. And it's a serious, it's probably the most serious crisis of the second age of water. And I mean, we have in California and also the UN has a, like a human right to water, right? Yes, that's right. I, I've done a lot of work on this. I wrote a paper about the human right to water in the 90s when there wasn't one. Uh, in 2010, the UN formally declared a human right to water and has continued to work quite hard to set targets to provide safe water and sanitation to everyone on the planet. We have what are called the Sustainable Development Goals, one of which is to meet 100% of the world's needs for safe water and sanitation by the year 2030. And California passed a law, said there's a human right to water, but we're still trying to figure out really how to implement that. Mm -hmm. And implement, you know, you can pass a law, but unless you can implement it and actually put it in place, uh, it's just a paper. It's just words on paper. Yeah. Let's bring in uh, Ricky in Auburn. Welcome. Hi. Thank you very much. Uh, since I've been waiting, you you touched on some issues uh, that's relevant to what I was going to say, which ultimately what kind of urgent measures are being done to save the bumper crop, if you will, of water we're going to have this year like we did a handful of years ago. And, of course, we're in a long-term drought. Mm -hmm. when one or two of the dams were about to melt down. But I, I have a sort of uh, some ideas here. I was a, a bit of a physics savant as a, as a kid. But so, so decentralization, great. So right now, and are they urgently pumping, siphoning off uh, with, with, with trucks? With, when you go to these small towns across America, you see these storage tanks with the name of the town on it. <laughs> These things should be urgently being filled up all over the place. Pipe it off to the Central Valley. Pipe it off to the uh, Colorado River because it would be a crime to waste tons of it by spilling it off this bumper crop. And it should be thought of as a crop. Every winter we have a crop yeah. of melted snow from the uh, uh, from Tahoe and so on. And this yeah. year it's extraordinary. If we have to waste it, that's awful. It should be being, with a sense of urgency, decentralized, stored all over the place. More, you know, yeah. like I said, even if it's trust. Oh, and those deep, those deep wells you were just talking about. Good, dump it in there. Yeah, that's a, that's <laughs> well, a, thank you, Ricky. Yeah, appreciate you know, that. Yeah, Ricky. that's a that's a great follow up, actually, because um, you know we are in a long term drought. We've had a series of drought years. This year was a very very wet year. Uh, which, of course, raises the issue of climate change, which maybe we can come back to. But there has been uh, 
a growing effort to try and capture what we call the stormwater that we get when we get a good wet year. There are some pilot projects underway in the Central Valley to uh, spread some of the floodwaters over land to encourage groundwater recharge. There are, there's a little bit of artificial uh, repumping directly down into the aquifers, but mostly the idea is to figure out how to spread those floodwaters so that they can naturally recharge groundwater. We need to do much more of that. You're, you're absolutely right. That's a, a very important tool, and we're not doing it anywhere near to the extent that we could do, mm-hmm. um, and we'll have to do that in the long run. You know, one thing I wanted you to touch on briefly to, to Ricky's point is why we don't pipe water in the way that we pump, you know, fossil fuels. Um, I mean, the answer is quite obvious once you hear it. I mean, like, compare, like, the value of a tanker of oil to if we filled up that same oil tanker with water. Yeah, so we don't move water very far because the truth is we don't pay much for water, and water is really heavy. And so if you fill uh, a traditional oil tanker with oil at today's prices for oil— you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars worth of value. And if you fill that same oil tanker with water, clean a clean oil tanker with yes, water. Right. Hypothetical uh, clean oil tanker. It, it's, yeah. only, it's only a few hundred thousand dollars. And you start to move that oil tanker with diesel and you can't go very far before it's uneconomic. So, so we don't fill tankers with water. We don't ship them very far. You know, we build aqueducts and we move water in California a few hundred, uh, you know, a few hundred miles. And that's because we use gravity to do that. Uh, we have some pipelines that but don't go very far. We don't want to pump water over mountains because that's really expensive. It's it's partly physics and it's partly economics. Yeah. Um, one other thing to this incredible water year that one listener wants to ask about is, was the historical existence of Lake Tulare factored into water rights? And I think what I'd like to extend that question out slightly more is when we were assigning water rights or we were creating these institutions for water management in California, we actually had a very different hydrology in the state, right? I mean, for those who've been following the story of Tulare Lake, I mean, it's pretty remarkable that there used to be this massive freshwater body at the bottom of the Central Valley, which, you know, in our lifetimes has, has existed for, you know, maybe a matter of months in the early 1980s or something, basically has not existed. Yeah, that, that's right. So Tulare Lake, which was the large, one of the largest lakes in the West, maybe the largest lake in the West, uh, much bigger in area than Lake Tahoe. It didn't hold nearly as much water because it was very shallow. Uh, fills up the bottom of the San Joaquin Valley when the Kern River, the, uh, the Kings River, a couple of other rivers flow into it off of the Sierras. And it disappeared precisely because we gave away all of the water. All of the water that used to flow into what was Tulare Lake was diverted for agricultural uses, and Tulare Lake disappeared. It has reappeared this year, uh, in part because we had such a wet year. We had such a great snowpack and then a lot of snow melt, uh, and we couldn't divert it all. It's all ended up back in Tulare Lake. Uh, it's a good example of the fact that not just have we given away all of the water and water rights, but that the climate uh, is different. We're now seeing these more extreme events, more extreme floods like this year, more extreme droughts like uh, over the last decade. And that fact, the change in climate has not been factored into either our institutional management or the the system that we built. Mm-hmm. 
You know, Jed uh, has another question on this kind of climate water nexus. Jed writes, uh, I'm a water resources engineer specializing in integrated management of flood, water supply, water quality, and geomorphology. I've assumed that an energy revolution will solve many of California's and the world's water supply problems, allowing desalination along our coasts in a feasible way. Israel has done this with great political success, but still at high energy cost. Is this a correct assumption? If so, is the timeline for this energy revolution fast enough to be a silver bullet for water supply? Just to give listeners a little bit of context here, desalination requires a pretty tremendous amount of electrical energy to be used in order to actually make the desalination happen. And so a lot of the cost of desalination is the energy cost that would go into doing it. So the assumption in this question is that as the price of electricity dropped, say, you know, via some magical nuclear power option or through falling solar electricity costs or whatever it might be, that you would be able to do desalination at low cost. I'm assuming, Peter Glick, you don't think that's going to happen, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, so desalination works. We know how to take salt out of water. We know that 97% of the water on the planet is salt water. And so a lot of people think, as uh, you know, I said earlier, let, let's just desalinate. And that'll, that'll solve our water scarcity problem and our water shortages um, and I'm a fan of desalination in concept, but I'm a fan of it once we've done the things that are environmentally and economically better than desalination. And in California at the moment, uh, conservation and efficiency improvements, more stormwater capture, as we've been discussing, more wastewater capture treatment and reuse are all economically and environmentally better, better at the moment than desalination. And even if energy was free, which it never will be, uh, desalination is expensive. So uh, Israel is desalinating now because they're much more efficient per person than we are per unit of economic benefit they get. Uh, they're already recycling and reusing almost 80 or 90 percent of their wastewater. Uh, and they're much drier than we are. Uh, and so desalination makes more sense for them. We do have one big desalination plant in, Carl, in Carlsbad in Southern California for San Diego. Uh, it's very expensive. It, it's uh, about 10% of San Diego's supply, and it's raised their bills. Um, but once we've done the things that are better off and faster and cheaper, I, I think they're, it's an option. Let me put it that way. Yeah. Let's get to uh, one more caller here. Let's go to uh, Henry in Santa Rosa. Welcome. Oh, Hi. I wanted to uh, thank you for the story. I wanted to ask about historical water ownership. Mm. Um, is it transferable? Mm -hmm. Can you buy and sell them? Yeah, it is indeed. Well, right? so again, it, certainly, it sort of depends on where you are in the world. Um, every region tends to treat water rights and ownership a little bit differently. Mostly the water belongs to the people, uh, and we allocate it. We give it away. Uh, we've given it away in California to water rights holders based on a first come, first serve kind of a system. Uh, and that's not, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about how to reform that system so that people who have been excluded from that and environment, the environment that's been excluded might be able to benefit from that. On the East Coast, it's a, what's called a riparian system where, you know, if you're alongside a river, you have the right to use it as so long as you're not harming a downstream party. Um, so it, again, it, the answer depends on where you are and the kind of kind of government uh, uh, systems and institutions that we put in place. But in California, you can buy water rights from uh, some other water rights holder. Right? Uh, no, not no. Not, uh, not not usually. 
Uh, if you're not using your, if you're a senior water right holder and you're not using your water right, uh, it goes to the next person on the list. Uh, it it goes down. It's sort of use it or lose it is the way we we've nicknamed it. But you can't. So I would have to like take possession of the water and then I can trade that water, right? Uh, and it's not entire. You can't always trade it either. Yeah. Uh, again, if you're not using it, there's somebody else who also has a water right, but they've never been able to get water that that would have it. Uh, and it's a very inefficient system. Now, there are exceptions. Uh, we're starting to see small markets develop for trading water among farmers mm-hmm. or within a water district. Uh, we're seeing some application of economics to water rights. These are, these are cracks in the system that I think will help us move toward more reform in the future. Yeah. For, for people who are interested, there's also uh, we've done a show with Jay Lund in the past. If you look up some of his work, he's been a big proponent of this you know, greater trading of, of water uh, around the state. Um, let's give you one last question. Um, Reed writes in to say, did water come to Earth originally on comets after the iron core of the Earth cooled? Oh, How do wa- we actually get this amazing <laughs> stuff here? Oh, oh, a wonderful question. And again, I had a lot of fun writing this book and looking, looking at some of the science on this. So there are different theories. One is that the water came with the original primordial gases and dust that formed the Earth. And when the Earth coalesced, the water was there. Uh, Water is ubiquitous throughout the universe. We see water everywhere we look. Um, But there's also another theory that it was just a little too hot. We're a little too close to the sun, and the water wasn't here at first. And the dry Earth, it was uh, the, the Earth was formed and it was dry. And it was then bombarded by wet comets and wet asteroids that retained a lot of water in the outer part of the solar system that's a lot colder, that bombarded the Earth and brought the, brought the water here. These are competing theories, uh, but water has been here basically for 4 billion years, whether from the very beginning or, or pretty soon thereafter from water brought from the outer parts of the solar system. Both are, are plausible at the moment. Yeah. We've been talking about the history and future of water with Peter Glick, co-founder of the Pacific Institute and author of the new book, The Three Ages of Water. This is a great book, Peter, and it really feels like it's a summation of your, you know, kind of life's work in trying to create a better water system. Thank you, Alexis. It was it was fun to write. Uh, it ends with a positive vision. I, I really do believe a positive future is possible, and the challenge is making the right decisions and choices to move toward that positive future. Yeah. If there's one thing you want people to remember about how the water system will change, what do you think it is? It's that we have a choice, uh, that, that we can choose to do the right thing, that we know that we have the science and technology and money to solve these water problems, and that we just have to have to move forward and look at what's successful and try and replicate it. That's Peter Glick. He's got a new book out. It's called The Three Ages of Water, legendary Bay Area figure, co-founder of the Pacific Institute. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with guest host Marisa Lagos. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.